Welcome to the Big Big Budget edition of Political Traction. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. Until this week, it had been two long years since the last federal budget. But that wasn't the only reason why the Liberals chose to go big this time around. The government says it has ambitions to see Canada build back better, greener, and more equitably. And it's all rolling out just in time for a fall election. From a new $10 a day national daycare program to an extension of some of the COVID-era safety nets. There's a lot to process. And here to help us do just that is front of the pod, Globe and Mail Ottawa Bureau reporter, Marika Walsh, and a very special guest and colleague, Graham Fox. Before joining Navigator, Graham was the president and CEO of the Institute for Research and Public Policy for 10 years. So he knows a lot about what goes into budget. And he's coming to us live from Navigator's fancy new Ottawa HQ. This is Political Traction. Thank you both for joining me on the podcast today to talk about this budget, which was bananas. It was huge. Uh, you know, it had big, fancy things in it, including a child care plan. Um, we have another $18 billion for Indigenous communities. We have $17.6 billion for green recovery um, to conserve 25% of lands and oceans by 2025. All kinds of things. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car. Um, so I've been very curious about both of your takes on this one Graham as someone who runs our Ottawa office and observes and Marika as someone who had to cover it. Um, so Graham, first to you, just broadly, take it anywhere you want, because there's $101 billion ways to take it. Um, what did you think of this budget? Well, look, I think the, the obvious place to take it, which is the, the place the prime minister clearly wanted to take it, which is the political realm. This was absolutely, in my view, a political budget, an election budget. Uh, and I think on that front, we're probably seeing that it was a, a relatively successful political exercise. Uh, Navigator was in the field in the days uh, following the, the tabling of the budget. And our data shows that a majority of voters who support both the Liberal Party and the uh, New Democrats uh, think this budget will be, quotes, good news for their family. Uh, and so if this was about consolidating the progressive vote under the banner of the Liberal Party uh, before an election, um, I think the Liberal government probably had a, quite a good week this week. Marika, what did you make of it? Yeah, I think Graham has it on the money that it's a political document. And what I would add to that is that it also really gave us a sense of timing of the election cycle and of the political cycle in Ottawa, because it showed us how clearly the Liberals are tying their future, their hopes, and the agenda for this country this year to the vaccination rollout as they ramp down these really costly and large support programs for businesses and people. That's all going to tie into the vaccination campaign. So the phase out of those supports comes with the ramp up of the vaccination campaign and the vaccination campaign ends on the same day almost as those supports. And I think that's a big sign for people of when that next election or when at least that time frame for that next election is coming. I think it is astonishing that we are talking about deficits over 300 billion and we have already stopped talking about this budget in Ottawa. Yeah, and, and Pierre Polyev points out that this budget um, gives the Prime Minister the distinction of in seven years, um, sinking us into debt deeper than all the debts in Canada we'd racked up in the previous 148 combined. Uh, 
do we care about that? I, I personally actually care about that. Um, I also think it's pretty fascinating that if you actually look at how governments can affect change in government, I think one of the biggest things that Prime Minister Harper did was he actually rolled back the, you know, the GST by two points, right? And what that did was effectively shrink the size of government. And this spending plan coupled with the debt is almost like that's that two points right there, right? They could have paid for it with that. So do we do we do we think Canadians care about about deficits? I personally care about them, but I feel like nobody else does. Graham? I don't I don't think we care yet, but I think we should. And I think that's the debate uh, that we're going to need to have mm-hmm. over the next several months uh, or years, uh, because this is unprecedented spending. It's unprecedented times. Um, but I think we are going to we are going to have uh, a, we're going to need to have a serious conversation um, about how we get back to balance, what the time frame for that is. And that part of the debate was completely absent. Uh, this week in Ottawa, um, but I think it's only uh, it, it, it will only it will only catch up to us later. The other piece, Amanda, that I would throw in uh, is this isn't j- just a major change for deficits. This is a budget that uh, challenges the federal fact of Canada in a host of ways, and Ottawa deciding that it will now run a national childcare program, uh, I think for families is probably at least interesting news, if not outright good. But I want to start to see how we're going to align that with provincial responsibilities and how that intergovernmental uh, negotiation is going to go, because that's really going to be what the make or break is for that uh, for that program. And we've already seen some of the sort of saber rattling from Alberta, from Ontario, right, have sort of come out and said, like, this is all nice and fine for you to do this. But what about, you know, how is this going to work? We're concerned about, you know, the lack of like, even though they've set aside, um, I'm just looking at the number, you can edit this part out, please. Uh, 30 billion over five years and 8.3 billion per year after that to create and sustain this by 2025, 2026. Uh, they're saying that's not enough, right? And even Quebec, I think, says it's not. But Marika, what do you make of the conversation around childcare? Um, do you think we're going to have basically a replication of what we saw with the carbon tax fight? I think uh, I don't. I don't think it's fair to say it's a replication because I think that there is an immediacy to the childcare discussion that is not in play with climate change and with the carbon tax and the immediate impact on families is something that. I think will be more difficult for premiers to argue um, against. I think it's a very interesting almost wedge that the Liberal government has set with these Conservative premiers compared to setting it with the other parties federally. I think on the notion of spending and the level of spending that we're at, the Conservatives have struggled to explain what they wouldn't have spent money on in the last year. (laughs) And so, you know, they will criticize the level of spending that we are at, but they really struggle to actually say concretely where the money is that they would not spend. You know, they're pointing to things like the Canada Student Service Grant that ended in controversy and that money wasn't spent anyways. So yes, we are at this incredible amount of deficit and debt, But it is not clear that anybody thinks that they should have meaningfully done something differently that a political party is explaining in any way to voters. I think going forward, there is this discussion because as the liberals have gotten rid of or showed the path out of these temporary programs, they are putting in new programs that are permanent. It's not just childcare. It's also 
dramatically increasing OAS payments for people over 75. That comes at a cost of about $3 billion annually after the first five years, which is about $12 billion. Same with a low income, um, a benefit for low income workers that also comes at a big expense to the budget. I'm not giving a determination on whether those are valuable policies. I'm just saying we are replacing temporary programs with new permanent expenses. And I think that's where the debate goes. And I think you make an interesting point, right? Because I looked at this coming out and I was like, how the hell does Aaron O'Toole fight this thing? Like, literally, what like what is he what does he say? And I think the interesting part is if you've looked at their social, obviously, you know, they did the first budget reaction thing and this doesn't prioritize for Canadians and blah, 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 blah. And then they've literally just moved right back to to, you know, close the borders. Where are the vaccines? Like, it's almost as if it kind of didn't happen. Uh, and to me, I think that's probably politically makes sense because you don't want to take the bait. But I remember like living in Ottawa and working in Harper's office in opposition. And like the budget was like a multi-week affair of us criticizing and pushing and poking. And it feels like they literally spend a hundred billion dollars and like nobody wants to talk talk about it <laughs> I, I just it's it's mind-boggling Graham. i seeing you're nodding so i'm gonna go because you were also you worked in opposition so you would know this stuff i worked for the fifth place party for <laughs> <laughs> the, the the valiant but uh, but small old progressive conservative party um but i i think but your point goes back to something uh, that marika was saying earlier and i think it, it, that really is the point right now there's a blurring of lines between what is a temporary measure to address the extraordinary times we're living and what will eventually become permanent spending. And I think when that comes into sharper focus, we'll, have, we'll be able to have a, a more intelligent conversation about the choices going forward on permanent spending. But until such time as that starts to, to become clear, there is no real opportunity for any opposition leader to try and start and, and create a stark difference uh, between the between the governments. And so th I think the opportunity for Mr. O'Toole really comes later when it really is about uh, the permanent plan going forward, not addressing the immediacy of the pandemic. And the trouble or the challenge for Mr. O'Toole is I'm not sure that time is going to come on this side of the next election. Yeah, and I think that on top of that, you know, you're describing a budget cycle, Amanda, when a minority government, I think, was a much more on the rocks. This is a very stable minority government because the NDP have already said they will support the budget. So the budget is not in question. The, the future of the government in a confidence vote is not in question in the same way. And the immediacy of the crisis is what is still captivating Canadians. And they, I do not think, you know, as Graham said earlier, the discussion about the debt and deficit and how government is spending and the role of government comes later. I think right now it seems that Canadians are actually okay with a bigger government than they've traditionally been. And the focus is on what the government is doing now in this moment, not what spending and what dollars and figures will happen even a few months down the road. I did want to take a minute um, just to like, I firmly remove my partisan hat, although I try for the podcast to a certain extent and just talk about the fact that it was a female finance minister that, that delivered the budget. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the first time in Canadian history it's done that there's this great shot of Christopher Freeland who has the best posture of anyone I have ever seen, because I don't know how you keep your shoulders that far back, but she's kind of charging across. Um, I, 
is it Rideau Street? No, but, but basically Wellington. 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 Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a long time since I live there. Charging across Wellington Street, the crosswalk, and like her black suit with these like kick ass black pumps that she got from a, a, a female entrepreneur um, in Toronto, uh, which is actually her, where her home riding is. And it felt, it felt great as a woman to see that happen. Um, I also, you know, even it felt great as a woman to see that happen. It felt great as a woman to see a female bring in a childcare, like a, a childcare plan. Like really, let's have that discussion. Cause I think that is so important to the future of making sure women are integrated in the workplace. We've had an example in Quebec for 20 plus years now. It's, it seems incredibly important to me that we have that, you know, across the country, like lots of other established nations in the world. So what did, what did that feel like for you guys to watch a woman? Um, and maybe Marika, I'm going to go to you first. And, and like, how was that covering that? Was that, was that a moment? Was it, did it feel special to you? So I have to say that budget day felt very disjointed for me because um, it was the first budget day where you're not in a room sharing information, talking to people. It's all remote. It's, you don't have a sense as much of, the big picture, I think, when you are just in your own apartment where you've been for the last 14 months yeah. <laughs> um, trying to cover something. So I think that it was a bit more of a delayed response for me. But I think when I saw, I think Larissa Waller tweeted, you know, this is how every woman should walk into every meeting or something, something along those lines. And I think that kind of reminded me of the impact as well. Actually, Aaron O'Toole was asked, do you like anything about this budget? And he said, I do want to congratulate Chris Trefillin for, for sort of this moment and, and for her role in, you know, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was along the lines of just marking the fact that this was our first female finance minister delivering her first budget and, and giving a bit of due to that. So I think that was actually a nice moment to see um, on Parliament Hill. But certainly we do see that, Liberals have talked about this for decades, and we do see yeah. that, you know, it's being revived in a very meaningful way by Christian Freeland. I think it's also important to note that in 2015, the Liberals were firmly on the other side of this debate. But, you know, they've come around to it, and they've decided that this is going to be, you know, really, since Christian Freeland became the finance minister, has this become an issue that the government is really meaningfully talking about? Yeah, I don't think if... If, I think if, with respect to Bill Morneau, who's a very nice man, I don't think if Bill Morneau was in that seat, we would have a national child care plan in front of us today. I do think a lot of that is because she's a woman and because of she's, this is an issue she's seized. Um, Graham, what did you make of the first female finance minister? Well, obviously, I think it was a, a critically important moment um, for all of us to see a woman stand in the house and table a budget for the first time in our history. I think that was a critically important, uh, a, a really important thing to witness. But I think even more than that, you're right, Amanda, I'm not sure we would be talking about childcare uh, if, uh, if someone else had been, uh, had been in that, in that position. Uh, but I think it's not just talking about childcare, it's talking about childcare as economic policy. And I was really happy to see that shift that we're taking it out of the realm of social policy and we're finally recognizing that this is about work family life reconciliation this is this has to be central to any economic recovery plan and so even just that shift of mindset that we're taking it and we're we're putting childcare in the center of how we think about uh, economic growth i think is something that uh, it, is a departure that we probably won't be able to unwind and i think that's a really 
uh, a really good thing, uh, notwithstanding the intergovernmental issues I was raising earlier that I think uh, good negotiations can probably work out. Um, I think recognizing that childcare is part and parcel with how we have to think about the economy um, is, is a really interesting development in my view. I do also think though it's not, it, obviously you cannot take away the role of having Ms. Ms. Ridland there and the role she plays in that as the first female finance minister. But I do also think that the pandemic has changed the discussion mm -hmm. in Canada around the size of government programs and Absolutely. what governments are allowed to do and how much they can spend in a way that gives them an opening to not sneak this under the rug because everybody's going to see it. But it's preconditioned after billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars have been announced, you know, daily last year that, you know, the spending is doesn't seem as scary, I think, now as it would have a year and a half ago. Yeah. And I, I used to I always say this in comms. It's like we're, you know, blah, blah, blah is investing a billion dollars. I'm like, don't say stuff like that because like regular Canadians, no one's ever going to see a billion dollars. Right. Like the mm -hmm. biggest thing will most of us will ever buy if you're lucky now, given the prices is a house. So like people can understand like maybe the quantum of a million five hundred thousand. But it's that stuff is too big. But I feel like I do feel like Marika that is so even how we're talking about it today, it's like, yeah, of course we would do a national child care like mm -hmm. I don't think like probably a couple of years ago, I've been like, what, where are you going to get the money? How's that going to work? And now I'm like, we should just find a way to do it. Um, and I, I do right. think, and I think it's when change. I'm saying that it doesn't see as scary, I seem as scary the spending. I mean that as an emotional response from voters. I don't mean that as an economist. I'm not an economist. And I don't mean that as a government accounting and squaring the books thing. I think there's lots of questions, for example, about the interest, the level of interest payments that they're projecting even a few years down the road. But I do think that this pandemic has conditioned voters in a different way for that level of spending. And I think and part of, part of uh, there's a compelling argument to be made that part of what we're seeing now is also catch up spending. And I'm thinking specifically of long-term care where the investments that are, that are required now and about to come are actually about catching up with 30 years of neglect uh, on a program that should have been better funded uh, a long time ago. And so this is, this, this, I hope, is at least in part uh, an opportunity to kind of backfill some things that we've been conveniently ignoring for far too long. And I want to ask you guys, so to pick up on that a little bit, our, jet, our debt to GDP ratio is expected to, well, be well above 50% in this. If, if we grow our way out of it, and I'm using quotation marks in this, um, it should fall to 49.2% by 2025, 2026. Um, so let's assume, let's just play this out that the Trudeau government rolls this out to a majority win, um, you know, in the fall, like which very elections matter, but that could happen. They, the bill for this comes forth in the next couple of years, right? Where they're going to have to figure out a way to pay for this. Are we, what do you think we're going to see? Do we see an increase in GST? Um, there was musings about capital gains, which I think would be political suicide for any party, but maybe you do with the majority government because you don't care. Right. And you have to pay it off. So do you think there's are there even conversations happening about this? Where do you think this government will take it? Graham, you're nodding, so I'll go to you first, and then Marika. Well, look, I think it's high time we have a, a large public discussion about how what we tax and how we tax it. Um, I think we're too reliant on income. I don't think we're reliant enough on consumption taxes. And I think we need to think about what the role of carbon tax in this mix, and maybe uh, the scary size of 
def- of uh, budget deficits that are coming, maybe that triggers the conversation again that we've been ignoring for far too long. I mean, the last time we had a fundamental rethink uh, of how we tax Canadians was uh, what led to the GST in the late 80s in the first place. Uh, and so 40 years on, maybe it is time to look at the right mix of what we tax, how we tax it, and where government gets its, its revenues. And I hope that green taxes will uh, play a larger role in that. And maybe we get to reduce income taxes uh, in the way that a lot of us have been arguing for for years and years and years. Marika, is there any conversations you're hearing in Ottawa about how to pay for this or they're not even, it's not even there yet? No, (laughs) no. (laughs) Uh, I think it's very noteworthy uh, that the Liberals have cut taxes for households and individuals in both election cycles. So in 2015 and 2019, they reduced tax burden on individuals while adding these massive programs. So, you know, there is not an appetite um, for this. I think we saw they tried to change some of the rules for small businesses in the last in the last government, and that did not go well for them. And I it does not seem I think Graham's right that you know, at some point, some reckoning is going to have to come. But I think uh, there does not seem to be that appetite now. I would also I think one thing I would actually say on the budget that has not received a lot of attention is that actually, despite the fact that we are in a healthcare crisis, Mm -hmm. that's what that's what the base of this is, there is actually not a lot in that budget for healthcare, or for long term care. The spending on long-term care is $3 billion over five years starting next year. That's one year of spending on the OAS increase. And so I think that there is still um, a lot to be discussed about what we do for our most vulnerable seniors. And maybe that's, you know, what they save for the next election. Maybe, you know, the election platform has that healthcare response. But I think that is something that is really still left to be answered from this budget. All right. Uh, we are going to leave it there. Thank you for that. And we were moved to the rapid fire round. Uh, I Is it too late now to say sorry? Uh, Doug Ford, Premier Doug Ford had his uh, crying, you know, emotional press conference yesterday. Uh, what did you make of that, Marika? I don't think it's about being too late to say sorry. I think it's about the what's next and what do you actually do then? And I think that is not yet answered. And so it, the jury's about a bit out. Yeah, and by the way, I was quoting Justin Bieber there for folks that. <laughs> that one I got, Amanda. That one I understood. It's rare that I get a pop culture reference, but even I got that one. And I want to be like, is it too late now to say sorry? Um, Graham, what did you make of, uh, of our emotional premiere? Look, I don't think it's an issue of time. I don't think it's ever too late to say sorry. I think it's more about permission space. And I think empathy is earned. And that may be where the Premier uh, had a little bit more trouble this week. But I think we have to be sympathetic to what all our political leaders are uh, are dealing with and the extraordinary year they've lived through. Um, and so I, for one, want to see action come with the apology. But I think the apology was uh, was absolutely legitimate. International flight restrictions. All of a sudden, the the double mutant variant is here. It's here, people. It's in Quebec. So we've now locked down no flights from India for the next 30 days. Uh, Good move uh, or too little too late. Marika? 
it's also already in BC and a lot more in BC. Um, I think that the government has had an extremely confused message on borders and that continues. And it's confusing why that continues 14, 15 months into this. Um, they appear to be undecided on whether or not these sort of very intense restrictions actually work. And so depending on the month, it's a different answer. Graham? This should have been done a long time ago. Welcome to the meeting. We've been expecting you. <laughs> um, okay. COVID suddenly disappears. What's the first thing you do? Marika? I don't even know everything. Just like everything. I'm just going to run through the streets hugging people, Amanda. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Actually, last night I was talking to one of my friends and like legit, I would plan a road trip and just go to every city where I have a friend that I haven't seen in two years and just hug them and have a glass of wine or a bottle of wine with them and then go on to the next city. It's amazing. I'd still wrap it between, but yeah. That's just good. a lot That's of hugs. A lot of hugs. Okay, Marika wants hugs. Graham? A cold pint on a sunny patio. Yeah? That's a good one. <laughs> I would immediately book a trip to St. Lucia to go to my favorite place. That's where I would. That's what I would do. My marker here, here. choice. We would be. We would be off like a herd of turtles. Okay. Not Nola. Not. You know. Maybe I should go there. You're right. That's yeah. a good idea, Marika. Whoa. Nola would be better. Amanda. I take that back. Nola, it is. All right. We have to call to a close because uh, Graham has a very important appointment for a job, which is amazing, and Marika has to go hold the government to account. So thank you both for joining the podcast this week. And I'm not jealous of Graham at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me either. We're gonna. I'm gonna put my Graham. Thank mask you, AstraZeneca. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, guys. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Political traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show is produced by Simon Redden, Hunter Nifton, John Gardner, Kimberly Drapak, and Nico Waltenbury. A very special thank you goes out to this week's guests, Marika Walsh and Graham Fox. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate us online wherever you find your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Traction Polly. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We'll see you next Friday.